If you have your Bibles this evening, please open to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18, if you're using a pewback Bible, you'll find that on page 55. It'll be in Exodus 18 this evening. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter as we continue in our study of the book of Exodus. Exodus 18, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, The God of my fathers was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way. And how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. And that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. And out of the hand of Pharaoh. And has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, "What What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people will also go to their place in peace." So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law 
And he did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses led his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. The grass withers and the flowers fade. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we come to your word this evening, let us taste and see that you are indeed good. Father, reveal your truth to us that we might better grasp the beauty of your word, that we might better understand the provisions that you made even for Israel as they picture for us what you intend for your church. And we pray most of all, O Lord, reveal to us your glory, that in all things we may praise and honor your name. For we pray in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. There's often a great temptation in the modern church, the Western church, to view the Old Testament as something of an entirely different nature than that of the New Testament. Perhaps you've met these kind of people, or perhaps you even were or are one of them. One who views the Old Testament as Israel's story and the New Testament as our story. The Old Testament as a list of antiquated laws and traditions that were the means by which Israel worshipped God and how Israel found salvation. And insofar as we're concerned, are helpful insomuch as they tell us the history of how God used to work, though now is different. And even for us who are Reformed Christians, who tend to have a, a better and more balanced understanding of the Old Testament in relation to the New Testament, we still often find and have difficulty seeing the same truths in both the Old and in the New. Well, tonight as we examine this brief excursus in the text, we come to yet another passage in Exodus that foreshadows something God won't reveal in greater detail until much later. That is his plan for the church's rule and care. And while it's easy to read a passage like this and to think something along the lines of, oh, that was smart of Jethro and it was good for the people of Israel, we must be diligent in realizing that what is good for Israel is good for the people of God, i.e. the church. And so my hope is that we will see just such a reality this evening. We're going to do so by making two observations about the text. We're going to see, first of all, that the people of God rejoice at the stories of God's redemption. We're going to see the people of God rejoice at the stories of God's redemption. And then secondly, we're going to see how God's perfect plan for elders. God's perfect plan for elders. Before we jump into part one, I'd like to do a little bit of tidying up for just a moment in terms of where we are in the narrative. It's been six chapters since the Exodus and since the Passover. Since then, Israel has left Egypt. They've traveled through the wilderness. They've been threatened by Pharaoh's army. They've crossed the Red Sea. Uh, God has destroyed Pharaoh's army. They've traveled in the wilderness even further. They've done some complaining. They've been given water and manna. They've done some more complaining. They fought with Amalek. And now, here we are. In the wilderness, Last we left off, we were at Rephidim, uh, headed towards Sinai, and that's where we pick up with chapter 18. But there's something worth noting here, and that is that this chapter is a little bit out of order. 
Last chapter, chapter 17, we found that Israel had come and they had camped at Rephidim, and it was there that they fought with Amalek. And it's not until chapter 19, verse 2, if you look there, that we see that they set out from Rephidim. Verse 2, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. It's not until chapter 19 that they're going to move from Rephidim and land at Sinai, where they will spend a significant amount of time. And yet here we're told in verse 5 that they are encamped. When Jethro comes to them, they're encamped at the mountain of God. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he is encamped at the mountain of God, the mountain of God being Sinai. If you've ever read a book that has multiple characters who aren't all in the same place at the same time, You'll know this, this feeling where you'll be reading along with one character and, and following the story and it'll be building and, and there's this climactic moment and the chapter ends and the next chapter is a different character entirely, picking up with their story. And just as in those stories, um, the, the development of the story is necessary and it's important, so too here, as we jump from Israel to Jethro, coming to Jethro's perspective as he comes to Moses and spends some time with Israel and observes everything, um, just as those characters are significant to the flow of the story, so they are significant here. And it's in this chapter uh, that we see the beginning, the very foundation of what is going to come in the next several chapters. It's these men that Jethro advises Moses to place over the people of Israel, these elders that he is to raise up, who will communicate God's law as it's given to them by Moses, as it's given to him by God. Without this foundation, the law would never have been able to be given to the people in the same way. The people would not have been led in the same way by the elders, uh, though sometimes that had some negative uh, repercussions, as we'll see in the coming weeks. And so, as we're coming to this text, understand that this is just a brief, um, briefly a different viewpoint. The viewpoint of Jethro as he comes and he meets Israel at Sinai, uh, and this lays the foundation for what we'll come to in the coming weeks. The second textual thing here worth noting, and I'll just do this briefly because it stood out to me and perhaps you have the same question, is why is Zipporah, Moses' wife, with her father? Uh, Last we heard, she was on her way to Egypt with Moses and they were in an inn uh, with Moses and her two sons when the angel of the Lord visits them and the whole bride of blood story from Exodus chapter 4. So then why is she not with him now? Most scholars have adopted the rabbinic theory that Moses sent her back to her father as Egypt grew more dangerous, lest Pharaoh used her as an attempt to get at Moses uh, via uh, attacking or harming his wife or his children. And we don't know for sure why that, whether or not that is the reason. It does seem a plausible uh, reason. So that's why uh, Jethro has occasion to come and to visit Moses, to return and bring uh, Zipporah and Moses' sons to him. He comes and he brings them to Israel. He greets Israel. And it's in this greeting that we see in the first half of chapter 18 that we find our first main point this evening. Observe, the people of God rejoice at the stories of God's redemption. We're told in verse 8 that Moses, when Jethro comes to him, recounts everything that the Lord had done over the past few months to Jethro, his father-in-law. Verse 8, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Moses recounts everything that the Lord has done over these past few months to Jethro, his father-in-law. How God had 
brought them out of Egypt by a mighty ha- by a mighty hand. How he had warred against the gods of Egypt, casting them down one by one until the last was cast down, and Pharaoh and his entire army were overthrown in a single blow. How the Lord had delivered and redeemed his people, not once, not twice, but many, many times over the course of these past months, saving them from death, bringing them out of the land of sin, directing them towards the land of promise, and so on and so forth. How the Lord had provided for them bread from heaven and water from the, wa- from the rock, all the ways that he had worked and for his people and provided for his people. All of these, these are the things, the stories that Moses is recounting to Jethro. And the significant thing that we see here in this text is Jethro's response in verse 9. And what does it say? And Jethro rejoiced. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the land or out of the hand of the Egyptians. Well, we spent the last few months in the book of Exodus now and we've seen over and over and over again how the Lord has delivered his people how the Lord has fought for his people, how he has saved his people. We've seen it repeatedly. It has been the theme of the book from the very first chapter all the way now to chapter 18. But it's here we find, not for the first time, but for the first time in such explicit detail, the proper response to this salvation. And that is to rejoice. We've noted already how Israel doesn't have a proper response in previous weeks. The Lord delivers them by the, from the hand of Egypt in the very next couple of days. What do they do? They're complaining about the Lord just brought them out here to die. That's their, their mindset. That's not Jethro's mindset. When he hears these stories, these wondrous works of God, his, his only response is to rejoice in what the Lord has done for his people, to rejoice in it, to rejoice in God's deliverance, to rejoice in God's provision. This was, is, and should be the response of the people of God to the work that the Lord is doing, both in your own lives and in the lives of God's people broadly. This response, I think, it's worth noting, is marked by two significant details. That is, first, this response is a private response. It's a private rejoicing. You see that in verse 7. When Jethro comes, Moses meets him, and then the two go into the tent. They go into private, where then they have this conversation, and Moses recounts all these things. And it's in that tent that we read in verse 9 that Jethro rejoices. They speak privately with one another and rejoice in the work that God is doing together, but in private. But the response is not only private, the response is also public. And you see that in verse 12, where Jethro brings a burnt offering to the people, or a burnt offering to, to sacrifice to God. And then you read at the end of verse 12, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. He rejoices with Moses in private, and then verse 10, he blesses the Lord yet again. He rejoices with the Lord as he comes and he eats with Aaron and the elders of Israel, praising God for what God has done. This was a great feast, would have been a great feast, uh, a much more public and wide-ranging affair than was his conversation with Moses, and yet the response is the same. He praises God for what he had done for his people. Similarly, our rejoicing should be of a public and of a private nature. Rejoice publicly when the Lord answers prayer, when he provides for you, or as in this case, when he does a wondrous work in the life of his church. 
Celebrate God's good providence with your brothers and sisters in the faith. Rejoice with them, alongside them of of what it is that God is doing. Rejoice publicly, but then also rejoice privately over God's providences, both great and small. Praise Him not only for the big answers to prayer, but for the simple daily blessings that He gives each and every one of us. Such praise, and only such praise, is the right response of any Christian. This is what we see here in the first half of this chapter. Our second point this evening, or the second observation we're going to make, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time and and the majority of our time, is that we see, as Jethro observes the people of Israel, as he observes Moses and his practices with the people, we see God's perfect plan for elders. So after Jethro comes, he hears the story, he rejoices with Moses, he rejoices with Aaron and the people, praising God. He presumably sticks around for a little while. We don't know how long, but it was certainly long enough for Moses to go back to kind of his normal daily work. They, they take a break, they, they spend time together, catch up, eat a meal together, and then be it a day later, a week later, a month later, we don't know how long Moses returns to work and Jethro's just kind of hanging around the camp, seeing what's going on. And it's while he's doing this that he sees Moses take the seat of judgment over the people of Israel to hear their cases and decide their rights and their wrongs. And it's as he observes this that he notices a problem and he offers a solution. The problem, as he notices, is that this is an unsustainable practice. It's an unsustainable practice. Moses simply isn't capable of hearing all the problems of all the people all the time. He can only be in one place at one time and for one person at a time. When you think of the vast amount of people that had come out of Egypt, both Israelites and then other peoples who had come with them to serve Yahweh, this is a large group of people for one man to judge over. Even Uh, the small disputes were being brought to Moses. And so what Jethro notices is that it won't be long, if Moses is already not being worn out, it won't be long before he is completely burnt out and unable to carry on. And it's also unsustainable for the people because they won't have an answer to their problems for days or maybe even weeks if the problems begin to pile up and back up. So it's a problem. And so Jethro offers a solution. He tells Moses to raise up for the people elders to rule over them and to hear their cases. And any of the cases that are difficult or that they're unsure how to answer from God's law, they're to bring to Moses that he might inquire of God. But everything else, insofar as there are instructions for it in the law of God, uh, the law that God gives to the people, the elders will handle. They will do, they will rule, they will judge over the people. This is the pattern that God sets up, not only for Israel, but for the whole church. And there are three things that I want to draw your attention to in this pattern. Three things uh, that we'll notice about what Jethro suggests. First, there are certain qualifications for one who can be one of these elders or these judges. You see that in verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of ten. The first qualification, these people must fear God. They must be trustworthy and they must hate a bribe. These are the three qualifications. Qualifications that aren't so different from those in the New Testament. If you were to flip over to 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 7, we find the, the qualifications for elders or overseers. Notice what Paul writes. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. These men must be, if we were to sum this up, to sum up these words that Paul writes regarding the the overseers, and if we went over to Titus, we'd find a similar list of qualifications. If we were to sum it up, these men must be above reproach. And what's the best way to be above reproach? It's to be a man that fears God. It's only a God-fearing man that can be in such a position of authority and not abuse it. This is why this is listed first and foremost in Exodus 18, that they are God-fearing men that are going to be put in this place of authority. This is the foremost qualification, and it's, it's there as the foremost qualification because everything else that follows after it is a subset of it. All of those qualifications that we just read from 1 Timothy 3, all the qualifications listed in Titus, all the qualifications here, these other two, trustworthy and unable, uh, un- unlikely to take a bribe, are subsets of one who fears God. If someone fears God, if a man fears God, then all of these other things will be true of him. It is only a God-fearing man that can lead the people to fear the Lord in a good and godly way. Furthermore, this reminds us that there is no one man that has the corner of the market on being God's leadership. Moses was not the only leader necessary or even prepared by God for this task of leading the people of Israel. And although Moses is certainly significant, we don't want to make light of who Moses is or or what he did for the people of Israel and, and how he followed God. Certainly those things are significant. Israel could and would eventually function without Moses. This is something that we have to be careful about in the church today. We love to listen to great expositors and preachers, to hear them rightly and beautifully divide the word of truth. But we must not be so caught up in the man as much as the message that the man speaks. For if we are, our entire spirituality rises and falls with one sinful man. A few months back, Tim Keller and Harry Reeder died within a day of one another. Uh, and in many ways, they rock this this. These deaths rocked the world of the PCA. Many of you have heard their preaching. You've listened to their preaching for years. Perhaps some of you were even converted under it. Uh, or even if we want to go back a few more years, R.C. Sproul died. And I know many of you in here listen to R.C. Sproul even to this day. And many of you even take the pilgrimage every year to Mecca. I mean, Ligonier. Um, <laughs> to hear those men who carry on his legacy and it's a great legacy he was a godly man who promoted the gospel in a wonderful way and the men who carry it on even now the the speakers who are there every year who are proclaiming the word of god well and beautifully are great men of god but they'll die someday as well and someone else will take their place because it's not the men at the end of the day who are great but the gospel that they preach that is great And likewise, Moses, who is a great man of God, but he's not the only man of God. 
And so he needed help. And thus began the pattern that we have for elders that carries on even to this day in the church. Godly men who, who perhaps aren't serving in your role as pastor, but who are serving the Lord. They're God-fearing men who serve the church because that is how God has designed it. So we see first the qualifications. The second thing I'll draw your attention to here is that these elders were to judge both judicial and spiritual things. They were to judge judicial cases insofar as they handled disputes between the people of God, but they were more significantly spiritual in that they dealt with how the people were to live under God's law. And in this we find yet another pattern for us. The elders of God's church are to be men capable of evaluating a situation and offering guidance and direction according to the word of God. This becomes even more clear in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul reprimands the Corinthian church for enacting lawsuits against one another, and he calls them, rather, to resolve their disputes among believers by the counsel of wise men. This is the job of the elders to lead and to direct spiritually and judicially in the church for the peace and unity of God's people. It's what God had set up for Israel, and it's what God has set up for his church. Third observation, and uh, we'll draw to a close with this. The third thing I'll draw your attention to here is the system that's laid out for us. And I really only want to make a brief observation here. But notice that the system is a hierarchical one. I practice saying that word way too many times to not mess it up, so I'm not going to say it again. But it's a hierarchy. I can say that one. It's a hierarchy that is set up. You see that. Verse 18, uh, notice what it says. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, excuse me, that's supposed to be verse 19. Now, verse 19, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And then if you jump down to 22, talking about the elders, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. But any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. In the verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. For those of you who are students of church government, uh, you can understand the implications of a hierarchy uh, as far as church government goes, especially for us who are Presbyterians. But the most significant thing here that we want to understand, and the thing to take away from this, is that the ultimate authority on the matter, the ultimate authority in every single one of these cases, no matter how small or how great the case is, the ultimate authority is God himself. These men are not to judge according to their own wisdom. Moses does not judge according to his own wisdom, though he is certainly a wise man. They all, Moses and every single one, the ones over the thousands, the ones over the hundreds, the ones over the fifties, the ones over the tens, they all are to judge according to God's wisdom. This system is set up for the sake of the peace and unity of Israel, and it's a goal that is only achievable in Christ. If God is not the ultimate and a final authority that they are looking to, then there is no hope for Israel. Their system will fail. It will become corrupt. Injustice will happen. We see this if we keep reading the history of Israel. You see what happens when the men reject the wisdom of God for their own rules, their own plans. Judah and Israel both alike become unjust places, places that pervert God's justice and use it for their own gain. It's essential 
That these men, these elders, look ultimately to God, to His Word, to His law, to His truth, to His redemption that He has accomplished through the Passover and the Exodus and everything else up until this point. They must look to God. And if they don't, then they will far, 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 fall far short of the mark. So too for you. If God is not your final authority, if you're looking anywhere else or to anyone else, you will never find the peace that you seek. It's only in Christ, it's only in the wisdom of God that such peace may be found. Well, we've seen the proper response of believers to God's wondrous work. We've seen that we ought to rejoice in public and in private for the things that God has done, both great and small, all His wondrous providences. And we've seen through Jethro how God established the first elders to govern His people um, and in both of these things, we've seen most importantly how God cares for and loves his people. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks, O Lord, for who you are and for what you've done for us. Father, that you have raised up godly men from among your people to rule and to guide and to direct our paths. To be over your church, not that they may lord it over the individuals, but that they might serve them, that they might, as Christ did, wash the feet of the disciples, that they might give of themselves, looking only to Christ for his wisdom and his guidance to direct and lead this church, both spiritually and physically. Father, we thank you for our elders of this local congregation, for all the hard work that they do, Lord, for the, the, the labor that they put in as they seek the will of the Lord in all things that they do in all the decisions that are made for this church. We pray for them. Strengthen them. Let them fear God. May that be their first and foremost goal in all things. Let them be trustworthy. Let them meet all of these qualifications as they seek to serve this church. Not for the sake of our church. Not for the sake of themselves but for the kingdom of Christ and the glory of Christ. Father, be with us this night. Be with us as we go from here. May in everything that we say and do this week, we bring glory to your name. For we pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.